For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is perhaps the most familiar verse in all the Bible. John 3.16 It tells us in one sentence what it means to live under the reign of God. The kingship of Christ that was celebrated with such vivid imagery back in chapters 4 and 5 of this book. We meet another king in this passage, a king that is called elsewhere in Scripture the ruler of this world, the god of this age, the prince of the power of the air. Here in verse 11, it's called a king. And we see in this chapter, by contrast, a bit of his reign. What it looks like to live under his reign. Where allegiance to him ultimately leads. Proverbs 14 says there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Familiar proverb, yes? There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end, but its end is the way of death. That can sound so innocuous when we hear it, can it? Just a simple little truth, like it's some sort of a mild warning to make sure you get enough exercise or eat enough vegetables. You don't want to follow the way of death. But here in Revelation 9, we catch a glimpse of the way of death. The way of death that stands in contrast to the eternal life that Jesus mentions in John 3.16 and many other places. And my friends, it's nothing innocuous. It's no simple matter. The way of death is to be avoided. And when we get into these latter chapters of the Bible, we can see that with abundant clarity. And it's what makes those final two verses just stunning in their implications. Even seeing the power of God, we're not inclined to repentance. The way of death. We also need to keep in mind as we move through this passage today that these judgments are the beginning, the beginning of the expression of the holy wrath of God. Released, at least in part, remember, in answer to the prayers of his people. That's what we saw in verses 3 to 5 in chapter 8. His people are asking, how long? And that's in chapter 6, and in chapter 8, we're told, okay, he's starting to answer. And the incense that was mixed with their prayers and was raised before God by the hand of the angel 
then scooped up fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth. And this is what happens. This is the holy wrath of God being poured out against sin and rebellion and exposing with abundant and undeniable clarity the way of death. We should also keep in mind that even though there's a progression here from the first seal to the seventh and then now from the first trumpet to the seventh, we really need to resist the urge to see these as some sort of a neat chronological progression. It just doesn't appear as though that's the way it's written here. Rather, it seems certain that there is repetition and recap going on in different ways, asymmetrically, unevenly, multiple tellings of similar events at different times or from different angles and an intensification of the severity of the events with each retelling. So in that sense, there is a progression, but intensity is increasing. In fact, seeing that the seven trumpets seemed to be the content of the seventh seal when it was opened, and although less obviously, the seven bowls that come in chapter 16 seem to be the content of the seventh trumpet. These judgments, therefore, just roll out like those, those fireworks that explode concentrically two or three or four times from one launch. Do you know? You've seen them? Boom, and then a second, and then a third. That's the kind of thing we see here. That's a good image for the explosive judgments of God as they are being revealed here in the progression through the book of Revelation. So let's look at this chapter now in three parts and see what we can learn and see what encouragement comes from this description of the way of death. The first trumpet, verses 1 through 12, the first woe. John finishes our chapter 8. I say our chapter 8 because you know the original documents weren't separated into chapters and verses. This was just progressive. So sometimes, especially in a book like this, we can get too clear a distinction in our minds between chapter 8 and chapter 9. But, wow, chapter 8 is intended to walk right into chapter 9. As chapter 8 finished, it finished with a pronouncement of Three woes to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And with that, we move into chapter 9. Here they are, those woes. Verse 1, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. As we noted last Sunday, we recognize now that there's no way that a star could fall to earth without incinerating the earth long before it arrives. But now we see here that this word star doesn't always mean what we first think of when we hear it. This star here is some sort of living being. 
And we can get that. We still call famous entertainers stars today. It's metaphorical usage of that word in our own day. So it is here. He was given the key to the bottomless pit, this angel that had fallen from heaven to earth. We'll see in a moment who this is. Verse 2. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. In John's vision then, just to be clear and explicit, hell opened up and is belching smoke into the air that's darkening the skies. Verse 3. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. Given their origin, just think of these as demons, fallen angels, freed from the pit of hell. And they were given power, like the power of scorpions of the earth. Scorpion stings are, are very painful but usually not fatal. Verse 4, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only, only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So this is judgment from God. It's a judgment of God on the ungodly. And no one or nothing else. These locusts that sting like scorpions were allowed to torment the ungodly for five months, says verse 5. That's a long time for this kind of trial. It's not just an hour like we saw back in chapter 3 to the church at Philadelphia. It's not just... Ten days, like we saw with the church of Smyrna in chapter 2. But it's also not 42 months, like we'll see under the beast in chapter 13. These demons were allowed to torment those people who live on the earth, who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads, but, verse 5 continues, not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. We get captivated by the potential of physical pain when we talk about the judgments of God being poured out. But this word torment here is interesting. It is primarily spiritual and psychological when it appears elsewhere in Revelation this word. So these stings don't seem to be describing physical pain primarily at all. The image here is more like demons doing just like what we know demons do today. Namely, magnifying the spiritual, emotional, psychological struggles that people face to the point that they just want to die. But their struggles are not terminal. 
That's suffering. Suffering under the weight of your own sin and aberrant desires, magnified by the powers of hell for an extended season. That's what this passage is describing. Verse 6, in those days people will seek death and will not find it. I think this is one of those signs that we see in our own day. We're saying seeking death and not finding it. You might also say seeking death and not even recognizing it. Some of the struggles that we see on a spiritual, emotional, psychological level today, not even knowing who we are or these days what we are, that echoes this judgment right here. We see this. We understand what this looks like. Longing for death but not finding it, and maybe not finding it because you're not even aware that death is what you're longing for, that you're on the way of death, that you're pursuing the way of death. This battle is hellish, but not yet final. It's the beginning of the outpouring of the wrath of God. Then John begins to describe these locusts that emerge from the smoke belched from the pit of hell. And it's, it's language that's straight out of the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. You remember that in, in the wake of Joel describing the coming judgment, he goes on to describe the locusts that are the sign of God's judgment, that, that recall once again the plagues in Egypt. Joel chapter 1 verse 4, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten, what the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten, and what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. That's how he opens his prophecy talking about the judgment of God on his people. Not unlike what we were reading about in Jeremiah 2 this morning. Then the prophet Joel goes on to write just a couple of verses later, verse 6 of chapter 1, a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. Does this sound like the description? It was right here in Revelation 9. Over in chapter 2, Joel continues the description of this judgment force of God. Locusts that are presented as an advancing army. And he says their appearance was like the appearance of horses. Like war horses they run. And with the rumbling of chariots they leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble. Like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each in his own way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. No defense is what he's saying. 
They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. That's Joel's description. The judgment of God in the form of locusts. And these, in Joel's day, even though he's talking about the day of the Lord, and I think through telescoping, is actually seeing to the end, he's actually talking with a warning for his day. So these are just the armies of enemy nations surrounding Israel. In our text, the locusts are the demons of hell in the last days. A stepped-up enemy. And, verse 11, they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. That refers to the depths of Sheol. It also means destruction. And in Greek, he is called Apollyon. That means to destroy. But this name might also be a variant of the god Apollo and a reference to that. Little doubt, this is Satan himself, the angel of the bottomless pit. It's his first appearance in the book, but he'll be back. In Isaiah 14, the king of Babylon is described as a star fallen from heaven. Same language John uses here. And that passage is typically associated with Satan. Jesus used a similar metaphor to describe Satan. Luke 10, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That's what we see here. The point here is that the star came from above to below. It has already fallen. That's one of the ways we see this as an enemy and as a personage. Not just he was given the keys to the shaft of the bottomless pit, but the tense of the verb in verse 1 there. It's past tense. He has already fallen with the result that he is now present on earth. That Greek perfect tense. So this is talking, this angel here is talking about one that has already long since fallen. So the first woe, verse 12, the first woe is the demons of hell under the direction of Satan getting the green light to torment the ungodly, to ensnare them hopelessly in their debilitating, dehumanizing battles but not to kill them and not to touch the people of God or the earth. That's the first woe. Verse 13. The sixth angel blew his trumpet and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. Do you recognize this location? That's the place where the martyred saints are praying, chapter 6, verse 9. And it's the place where the fire was gathered to hurl judgment on the earth in answer to those prayers in chapter 8, verses 3 to 5. I heard a voice 
from the four horns of the golden altar before God, verse 14, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. That's an ominous thing to hear. Let's talk about it a little bit. Bound here, that they are bound at the great river Euphrates, suggests that these angels are also among those who are under judgment. And their intended destruction, what they would have surely long since destroyed, has been prevented up until now, awaiting, as we'll see in just a moment, the particular appointed time. So again, we see here in verse 14 that God is in charge of all of this as it rolls out. And it rolls out according to his timing. The Euphrates is one of the four boundary rivers of Eden, Genesis 2. But it was also the eastern boundary of the Roman Empire. We'll see that again over in chapter 16, verse 12. It's the eastern boundary of the Roman Empire, and it was danger to the east. Rome was vulnerable from the east, so this reference to the river Euphrates is full of meaning for those who heard it in the original reading of this letter. Verse 15, so the four angels who had been prepared for the hour the day, the month, and the year. Do you hear the specificity of God's sovereignty with regard to the work of these four angels? The four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The enemy hates image-bearing creatures. And this is what these angels had intended to do but had been withheld from doing until the appointed hour. Again, third of mankind, that means significant, especially when we're talking human loss. Significant, but not yet final judgment. We've been introduced to this third language before, and that's what we see that it's talking about. The beginnings of the outpouring of the wrath of God. This is like a warning shot across the bow of, the uncon of unconverted humanity regarding coming judgment. We'll see as we progress that it had a purpose. The purpose is to call them to repentance. That's why we get the report we get at the end of this chapter. But this is a warning. The beginning of the outpourings of judgment. This is what's coming this is the way of death. Flee for your lives to the author of life. But no ears to hear. At this time, then, we see a terrifyingly stepped-up fighting force moving from the fifth trumpet to the sixth. Verse 16. Then I heard the number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. If we do the math, that's 200 million troops. 
And we know that that's actually a humanly achievable number. Time Magazine, May 21, 1965, reported that China has a, an army of 200 million troops. That was a long time ago. But let me ask you, let me ask you a question at this point in our study of Revelation. Do you think this is a literal number? Consider how it's stated. Not 200 million, but twice 10,000 times 10,000. And consider what we're talking about here, namely an army of demons rising out of hell as the prepared judgment of God ultimately intended to draw human history to a close and sent out, at least in part, in response to the prayers of his persecuted and martyred people. Also, the language of verses 17 through 19 here in this description shows us three things, at least, that we can discern. First, that John is seeing this as a vision. Remember, we've talked about a vision being more like an impressionistic painting than like a photograph. So as we're trying to ask the question, do you think this is a literal number? Here's three things from verses 17 to 19. John identifies this as a vision. Second, both horse and rider are wearing the colors of fire and sapphire and sulfur. The colors of fire and smoke and brimstone, historically rooted in Scripture. So this is just like they're wearing the colors that are included in, for instance, the judgment of Sodom in Genesis 19 and other places in the Old Testament. The color of fire and smoke and brimstone. Third, we're still fully immersed in the language of apocalyptic. You can see as you read verses 17 to 19. Still drawing from the language of Joel and the metaphors, the images he used. And now also from a familiar description, Psalm 68, verse 17, the chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. So, answer... Surely, this could be a literal number of demons set loose to execute God's judgment. That's entirely possible. But, is that the point? Or is the point somewhat different? Doesn't it sound more like John is just describing here the total inhabitants of hell? Like hell has been released to do its work, to do its best. Now is the expression of the judgment of God drawing this world to a close. And just a little aside here, so that we treat one another a little bit more respectfully. 
When we premillennialists goad our amillennial friends, telling them that if Satan is actually bound during this age, as they try to tell us, that he must have a mighty long leash, perhaps we should recall what John sees here in Revelation 9 with regard to the four angels bound at the river Euphrates. A chilling outcome, verses 20 and 21. The images in verses 18 and 19, you know, even though we read it earlier, let me read that once again, 17 through 19, just to hear this picture. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them, they wore breastplates, the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's head, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. But these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths, not just in their tails, as we've already heard. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. That's the description that leads into verses 20 and 21. And that's what makes them even more remarkable as we hear them. Even when facing these events, the ungodly still do not repent of any of their godless ways. The rest of mankind, we read, who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of fivefold description, gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. Not even idolatry. Not even idolatry. Following false gods when the power of the true God is being manifest so clearly. It's stunning. Surely this proves to us that salvation is of the Lord Unless he opens our eyes, we simply will not see. Great blessing won't do it. Great cursing, judgment won't do it. Salvation is of the Lord. The question for us here today is this. Do we see things any more clearly than they saw them? as we read these descriptions from the page as opposed to experiencing them in reality? Do we see it any differently? Do we understand it any more differently? Do we, do we respond to it any differently? Or do we read this and think, wow, it sounds like science fiction to me, and move on with whatever you had on your calendar for today? Or do we hear this and say, the judgment of God is real. And we need to be ready for this. 
Do we see things any more clearly than they as we read the descriptions from the page? Not everyone can, my friends. Not everyone can. Some read these descriptions and despite the ones that are already happening today, we talked about that a bit just a few minutes ago, but there are many others. And those on the heels of of so much fulfilled prophecy throughout human history, throughout redemptive history. Even apart from those, some people read this and remain unimpressed, nonplussed, ambivalent, indifferent, outright unbelieving. But I suppose that should be no surprise to us. Jesus said that the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Talking about the way of death. And those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow. And the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The ways of life and death are before us. If you're drawn to the way of life, give thanks and praise to God. He's at work. Listen, respond, do not delay. That leads me to our one other question. What's our best response to Revelation 9 this morning? What's our best response? Well, I think that's it, folks. I think that's it. Give thanks to God for your salvation. Give thanks to God for your salvation. Praise Him that He so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Thank Him from the bottom of your heart that you have been set free from the ruler of this world. The God of this age, the prince of the power of the air, and so have been taken out from under the threats of Revelation 9, the the perishing that we read about here. We're saved by God in Christ from the way of death. Worship this God. Obey Him. Endure. This may be a good point, a good point at which to point out that that's our title for this series, Worship, Obey, Endure. It was pointed out to me early on, and now I can't remember who did it, that if you did that, (laughs) there it is, Paul Rupsis again. The acrostic is whoa. (laughs) That wasn't intentional, that was accidental, but we might say it was providential. That is the end from which we have been spared. Worship this God, obey Him, endure in that obedience for His glory and in thankful praise for His deliverance and the promise of eternal life with Him and with the Lamb in that scene that we heard about in chapters 4 and 5, but will be overwhelmed by the descriptions that we see in chapters 21 and 22.
And never, my friends, never again take your salvation for granted. Never under, underestimate the worth of your salvation. Never, ever be ashamed of its exclusivity. Only Jesus paid it all. And today's text puts before us the beginning of what would come upon us if it hadn't already fallen on Jesus on our behalf. Give thanks to God for your salvation. Amen? So let's do that even now. Let's praise him together even now as we gather at the table of the Lord thankful for our salvation. Pray with me, if you would. Heavenly Father, as we read about the outpouring of your judgment, at once we say, Amen, even with our limited understanding of the fallenness of the world. We recognize that a world in rebellion against you that is so bad that even we in our fallen state can see it needs to be addressed, needs to be resolved. And Father, as we begin through the chapters of your word that describe that completion, the ultimate defense and vindication of your holiness and of your glory, I pray, Lord God, that you would overwhelm us again and again with the glories of our salvation that you have provided and the worthiness of the land to be praised sevenfold for having provided it for us at his own cost. Well, Father, use this book as it was intended to be used to remind us of your glory and of your great salvation and to press us toward faithful endurance, having received it. And free us, I pray, from the tendency to trivialize this book in the ways that have so often become so popular. Give us ears to hear, just as was commended to the seven churches, Father, as we read and ponder Revelation 9. Give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.